Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah Keener here. Today is week two of our Surprises in the Text series, and it's also week two of welcoming our friend Mike Goldsworthy. Mike is an incredible friend and mentor of South Bend City Church, and he also sits on our board of directors. He is the creator and host of a podcast called Space for Faith, and he also serves as a connector for like-minded churches and church leaders. We're so honored to have him back for this second week as he jumps into Mark 8. Like the blind man who experiences a two-part healing in that passage, our faith often progresses through stages that grow and expand, and the places where we have grown from were often necessary pieces to help us bring us to where we are today. Near the end of Mike's teaching, you heard him reference a practice that we entered into together. That will be released in a separate episode of the podcast so that it's easily accessible whenever you need or want it. I can't wait for you to hear today's teaching. Let's jump in with Mike. Well, sisters and brothers at South Bend City Church, genuinely, 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 it is a gift for me to be with you all again. It was so fun to be with you last weekend, to hang with you at the Cubs game, and to get to know some of you there. Um, And I, I said this last week, but I just want to reiterate it again, what a special place this is. Uh, I met three different people last Sunday who essentially like came to South Bend City Church as a kind of like pilgrimage from different parts of the country that struggle to find a faith community like this where they are. And so they have somehow found their way digitally to you all, feel like this place resonates with them, and then have felt like I just need to be there at some point. And, and so people have come from around the country to come and to just sit here and be with you all. There's such a special thing happening in this place. And I know that you all know that I've met several of you that drive quite a distance on a regular basis to be here and to be a part of this community. And so, uh, again, I just want to tell you thank you for being who you are and creating this unique, special place Now, uh, I I had been leading this church in Long Beach that really, really, I began at that church two weeks after I had gotten married. So I had been there for 19 years, and in a lot of ways, they had seen me grown up. And when you grow up in front of a group of people, like, they, they experience a lot of different things from you. Like, not only do you change physically, but you change in other ways as well. But they would, like, see me changing physically in front of them. And one of the things that happened as I was leading this church is at some point I decided I would grow out a beard. And my beard, it was like good. It was a good beard. It wasn't like it is right now. You know, it's all, like, it was gnarly. It was big. In fact, there was this point where I was doing some work with an organization in another state, and they'd asked me, like, hey, would you send us a photo of yourself so that we can know who we're interacting with, so that as people on our team email with you or talk to you on the phone, they have an idea of who we're talking to here. And so I sent them a picture of myself, and one of the guys on the team, he, he said, he looks like he could chop down a tree just by staring at it. That's how good my beard was. I have beard envy of the beard that I used to have. And one of the things that I have discovered and come to own and just accept about myself is that I can be a bit awkward in conversation. And what would happen at my church is that people would feel like they would hear me speak and they'd be like, oh, I could be friends with this guy. I think we would like really enjoy each other. And they'd come up and they would talk to me and we would like talk for a few minutes and then they would walk away and be like, I cannot be friends with that guy. 
He's super awkward, does not know how to like engage in small talk well. And like, and, and so people were constantly trying to figure out like, how do we connect with Mike? And so they would find these like ways because good hearted, good natured people trying to figure out like, how do we, how do we build a relationship with him? So when I was growing up my beard, one of the things that began to happen is like, people were like, that's what we can talk to him about. He didn't have a beard, now he has a beard. <laughs> I promise you this is real. This is like people trying to figure out how to connect with Mike. So. So people would come up to me after a worship service and they would, they would ask me about the beard. What's it been like growing out a beard? And so, so many people were asking me that I began to have a standard response. That I began to say like, oh, I had no idea how much maintenance was involved. Because I thought if I grow out a beard, that means I stop caring and I don't have to care about things. And what I discovered was I grow out a beard and it means I have to care a whole lot more. Like there are like lotions and creams and special combs and like all of the things that you have to do to maintain it, and as it gets bigger and burlier, there's so much more work, and so I'd say that oftentimes. There was this one, there was this one worship service at the end of it, a, a couple came up to me afterwards, and they were a bit older than me, maybe about 30 years older than me, and, and they asked the, the connecting question that everybody had been asking, like, hey, Mike, what's it been like to grow out your beard? And I said a slight variation on the answer I'd been giving that I had never said before, and I don't know why I said it then, but I said, I have no idea how much manscaping was involved in this. And this woman, her eyes get real big, and she says, what, what did you say? And, and I said, yeah, like, I find myself manscaping all of the time. And I didn't used to have to manscape so much before, but now, like, I'm manscaping all the time, and I have to buy all these special things to manscape well. Like, I had no idea how much was involved in manscaping, what an industry there is around manscaping, and I'm going on and on and on about manscaping, and she finally leans in, and she whispers to me, because there's a lot of people around, she whispers to me, she goes, Mike, I don't think that means what you think that it means. And I just kind of laughed, and I was like, oh, yeah, and I walked away, and I pulled out my phone, and I Googled manscaping, which I do not recommend doing because it will throw off your algorithm. Like, you will be getting all kinds of <laughs> weird ads for things. Now, that phrase, I don't think that means what you think that it means, began to become a sort of moniker for me maybe even a sort of like mantra for me that began to describe my experience of my faith journey that I kept having, where I would come to these understandings of things, I would come to realizations of things, and then I would bump up against something and I would have to rethink it, I would have to like unpack it, I would have to like start to make sense of it, and I would have these constant moments of, I don't think that means what you think that it means. And so we have been, we've been going through the series we've called Surprises in the Text, where what we're doing is, is next week our friend, our mutual friend Sean Palmer will be with us, but we're just looking at some passages that for us, maybe we have been bumping up against recently. Maybe they're ones that have been stirring within us. And there's this one, this one that I want to look at today that I have for a long time been trying to like figure out like what do I do with this and how do I make sense of it? And what began to happen for me a little while ago is that I began to to connect with this text in a way where it started to make sense of that faith journey and experience for me, of that I don't think that means what you think that it means experience. It's this encounter that Jesus has with a man. It's found in Mark chapter 8, and so we're going we're gonna to look at that together. It's in Mark chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 22. Here's what Mark writes. He says that they came to Bethsaida, and they, talking about Jesus and his disciples, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. 
He took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. When he had spit in the, on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? To which the answer is, just loogie. He, thanks, sorry, I, I need to work on that delivery, apparently. He looked up and he said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. So there's this blind man, he's been brought to Jesus, and Jesus does this strange act where he spits in the man's eyes, puts his hands on him, and the result is the only instance we have of Jesus going to heal somebody and not fully healing them. That it doesn't fully take that, that some people will even call this a partial healing. He kind of experiences healing, but doesn't fully experience healing. What happens is he sees, but he doesn't see clearly. And, and when you read scholars trying to sort out and make sense of what's going on here, you get all kinds of opinions, all kinds of different angles that people are taking on this, all kinds of different ideas of like, how do we make sense of this? But one of the things that I have found, at least in the scholars I've engaged on this text, that I've found consistent across almost all of them, is that what they will say is that this story and the way that Mark uses it in Mark's gospel account, the story of Jesus, that this story is a sort of turning point for Mark. It's a sort of like a, a, a crossroads moment where Mark is showing the disciples as experiencing Jesus in one way, and then this is the story that provides this crossroads moment where they begin experiencing and seeing him in a different way. That, that up until this point, the way that Jesus' disciples could be described and the way that Mark sort of shows them, Jesus uh, says pretty clearly just a few verses before this in verse 18, that here's what Jesus would say to his disciples. That he says, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? That, that it's this way of saying to them, well, you get it but you actually don't fully get it. You, you see, but you actually don't see clearly. It's this way of saying you have some understanding, but in your understanding, I, I don't think that means what you think that it means. And this story of this man in Bethsaida serves as this sort of like transition point where the disciples are shifting from unseeing to seeing which I think for a lot of us is often our experience and our own journeys of faith. We often have these moments and these experiences where we come to some sort of understanding and then we become confronted with that understanding. Maybe we now have new information. Maybe we now have new experiences. We meet new people. We have a new depth of insight. We have some sort of new wisdom that's been acquired over the years and that what begins to happen then is we come to this realization of like, oh, I don't think that means what I thought that it had meant. We come to this realization that, oh, I had been seeing, but I hadn't been seeing clearly. And this is what my guess is that a lot of us have experienced. Maybe for you, maybe for you, you were brought up in the church. And as a result, you had a certain lens and a certain framework that had been handed down to you. And then you went, you like went to college and your worldview was expanded. And you had to figure out like, what, what do I do with this? Maybe you begin to learn things about the text. You begin to learn things about the scriptures, about how the scriptures were even put together. 
It, and it began to mess with you a bit in the way that you had thought about this book and what it meant for you and for your life. And maybe even you began to have some realizations, you began to come to some knowledge of the way that this book has been used to justify horrific evils throughout the world at different times, and you didn't know what to do with all of that. You thought you had understood, and then you realized I'd been seeing, but I hadn't been seeing clearly. Uh, or maybe what happened for you is that you, you came to faith in a faith community that had a f- fairly narrow view of God and a pretty strict and rigid and defined rules about what it meant to belong to the community of God's people. And so you existed within that for a bit and then you began to meet people who existed outside of that narrow experience. And they were good, beautiful people and you had to try to figure out what, how do I make sense of this when I'm meeting people who are outside of that. You begin to maybe even experience some disillusionment with some of the people who are held up as teachers and leaders in that narrow view and that narrow space and they had begun doing things that you realize was like damaging. They had been doing things that was even abusive at times and controlling and manipulative and they had been the ones who were held up as the leaders and the teachers and so you begin to experience this sort of like disillusionment. Have any of you ever gone through those sorts of experiences in your faith journey? Whereas like I understood and then I realized, oh, I don't think that means what I thought that it meant. I could see and then I realized, oh, I don't see as clearly anymore. I've had some sort of experience or new understanding and what's happened is that my faith is no longer working for me in the way that it used to. Or my faith no longer makes sense to me in the way that it used to. You have this, I don't think that means what I think that it means moment. And the thing is, what we have not talked about enough in the church, not at places like this, but in the church at large, is that that is completely normal. And not only is it normal, we find that to be a thing that has happened throughout church history. If you go back and you read the ancient mystics, you find the ancient mystics talking about this sort of like journey and progression of faith that sounds very similar to this. You find today contemporary behavioral psychologists who are studying this and have studied it, studied it across different kinds of faith experiences to see is there some sort of way that people that are, is like a normal way that people progress and move through their faith experience? Are there normal ways that people sort of move towards more and more maturity? Is there some sort of pattern that we can observe? And they found like, oh, there actually is. And, and we don't need though just the ancient mystics and we don't need just the behavioral psychologists to show us that because we know it's true because so many of us that has been our lived actual experience that if we were to go around this room, we could probably share story after story after story of the way that we saw something and understood something in our faith then bumped up against something and we had to rethink it, we realized, oh, I don't see as clearly as I thought that I did. Uh, The problem though is that sometimes in the church what we do is instead of recognizing it as a normal faith experience, we make it abnormal. And so what happens is because we make it an abnormal experience, we give labels to it and terms to it that maybe make it seem more destructive than it actually needs to be. And so we'll call it things like deconstruction, which 
If you're using that and that term works for you and that makes sense to you and that like describes for you like what your faith journey and experience has been, great. Like you should hold on to that and use that because if it works and it makes sense, do it. Like I, I find myself using it at times because especially in church circles or faith-oriented circles, when I use it, it's kind of a shorthand that a lot of people will immediately understand and identify with and we can like have a conversation then from there. But what I've begun to wonder is I've wondered if it's actually a term that carries with it a more destructive connotation than it actually needs to. Because what it's describing is actually something that is a perfectly normal and has been a perfectly normal experience and process of our faith journey. But because we haven't seen this as a normal part of our faith journeys, one of the things that we will do is we will often look back at where we came from We'll often look back at what gave us some of our early faith formation experiences, some of the people and communities that were a part of our early faith formation experiences, and we'll often end up looking back at them with disdain. And and I wonder if we could do it and see it maybe a little differently. I, I wonder if maybe we actually see those experiences as a developmental part of our journey. If we could see it maybe a bit like this man in Bethsaida, that he's been touched by Jesus, and so he couldn't see, and then he could see, but he couldn't see clearly. But, but it was more than where he was at before. It was more than what he had before. And so maybe, maybe where we're at today, we no longer need where we were before. We're, we're no longer in that place. That community doesn't make sense for us anymore. The way they talked about things, the way they described faith, uh, their definition, like that stuff doesn't make sense for us anymore because we've moved into a different place. But I wonder, I wonder if like actually we did need that then and that we wouldn't be where we are at today had we not had some of that then. Because sometimes where it starts is it starts in the same place where it started for this man from Bethsaida, where it starts with being able to see but not clearly. And that that's what we need first sometimes, is that we can see but not clearly. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that everything that happened in those earlier times and earlier experiences was good. That for some of us in this room, we experienced some things that were traumatic, were painful in ways that they didn't need to be. Some of us in this room have experienced abuse in some of those earlier situations, and we don't need to call something that is evil good. But at the same time, can we also be able to look back in the spaces where that wasn't the case, and maybe we've outgrown it, but can we also look back and say, oh, but there were some things that set me up for where I am today. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm working with people on this journey, on this kind of like faith expansion evolution journey, one of the things that I'll do is I'll use this metaphor, which I think, I think is an incomplete metaphor. I think it falls short in many ways, like so many metaphors do, but I find it to be a helpful sort of like handhold uh, like way of creating a little bit of framework. And I'll say this. I'll say, imagine, imagine that we're like teaching some kids about crossing the street. And I would imagine that there's an age and there's a developmental stage where when they're really young and small that we tell them, you don't ever cross the street. Never cross the street. And we tell them that because that's what they need and that's what would make most sense for them then. That's what they're able to process then. 
Maybe they grow up a little bit, they mature a little bit, and then what we tell them is we say, well, you can cross the street, but you can only cross the street when there's an adult with you and that there's an adult who's holding your hand. And we tell them that because that's what they can handle and process at that age, at that developmental stage. And then maybe they grow up a little bit and they mature a little bit more, and then what we tell them is like, well, you can cross the street on your own, but you can only do it at these times of day. You can only do it, you can only do it at this part of the street, and you can only do it when you look and up and down the street, there are absolutely no cars anywhere on that street. And so we tell them you can do that, but under those sorts of parameters. And then what we've done, what we've done at each of those stages is we've made some absolutist statements. But they're absolutist statements that make sense for that age and that stage. Here's when you can do it. Here's what's right. Here's when it's wrong. And at each stage, those absolutist statements, they expand a little bit as they change, don't they? But what they do is they set you up to get to a point where you are able to, on your own, because we are big boys and girls in this room, that I can cross the street all by myself now. And I can do that because when I come to the street, and you're going to do this without even thinking about it at some point today, you're going to come to the street, and ingrained within you is wisdom and discernment and judgment about when to cross the street and when not to cross the street, where to cross the street and where not to cross the street. How did you gain all of those things? You gained them because you had these foundational pieces that built upon each other where you then got to the point where you could be in a more expansive space and could make those decisions for yourself. The problem would come if we were to look back, it could be really easy to look back and say, you know what, I was lied to because I can cross the street and I was told I can't cross the street. Like, I'm an adult and I was told I always had to hold an adult's hand and I feel like I don't have to do that anymore. And you could look back with disdain or we could look back recognizing like, oh, I actually needed those things then. And of course you've outgrown it. Of course you don't fall within those strictures anymore. Of course not. You were never meant to stay at that stage. You were never meant to stay in that place. You were meant to grow beyond that. And maybe, maybe that's one of the things that's damaging us in the church right now. And I say this as somebody who's a leader in church spaces, who gets to work with church leaders across the country, that maybe one of the things that we have done that's happened in the church, I will, admit, I will confess to you that it is hard for churches to figure out, to figure out how do we create space for people when they don't need to hold the adult's hand anymore when they cross the street? How do we create space to allow people to become adults? And what happens in church leadership is because we don't know how to create that space, what we do is we get reactionary and we respond out of fear. And so we create these sorts of lids that say like, oh, no, 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 you're like, you're not supposed to go down that space anymore because just like some of us as our kids grow up in the house and we have a hard time letting them become adults and so we put up some barriers at times for them that in some ways could limit them moving towards independence and adulthood, that sometimes that's what we do in the church as well because we don't know, we don't know how to let people be adults in the space and so we, we react a bit to it. Of course you should grow past those stages but of course you also needed those stages. I, I had this experience recently that really shocked me at the way that I experienced it and received it. I, 
Well, I went back to a celebration that was happening at my home church, a church that I had grown up in that I'd spent the first 18 years of my life in. It's a s- small church outside of LA, less than 100 people that were a part of it, all growing up still, sort of the same size of church, like eight kids in my youth group all uh, growing up. And, and in this church, it embodies so many of the things that not only have I personally moved against, but that I give my life towards working for the church to not be those things. It's an incredibly patriarchal church. Women can't even serve communion at this church. If a woman is up on stage and she's going to say something, she can't be behind the pulpit. Like, incredibly patriarchal. It's uh, Christian nationalistic in so many ways. I showed up to this celebration service they were having for the pastor with with the Christian flag on one side. Anybody grow up with the Christian flag? And you pledged allegiance to the Christian flag, but you also pledged allegiance to the American flag on the other side of the stage. I grew up in that sort of experience. I grew up in the kind of experience where in my Sunday school class that I was told that if you don't believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, then you don't believe the Bible's true, you are not saved, you are probably going to hell, and they didn't say probably. Like that was the kind of experience that I grew up in, and so I've worked so hard to not only move beyond that personally, but to do work that moves churches beyond that, to help create space for churches that move beyond that, to thrive and to flourish. And so I found myself going back there because this church had given me my first job in ministry. This church was a place where I had grown up and had been so formative in my early years, and they were celebrating, they were celebrating the pastor who had been there for a lot of my formative years of faith. And so I went there because I wanted to honor that. And one of the things that I was most shocked by is when I got in the car to leave, I began weeping. And I was like, why am I weeping? There's so much about this place that embodies so much of what I have intentionally moved from. And I realized like, oh, these people had been such an important part of my life for so many years. We were in each other's homes. For 18 years, these people like raised me. And yeah, I'm in a different place now, but I have such a deep appreciation for the way that they loved me and who they are, and we see things so differently. And I've grown in different ways than where they are, but there was this thing of like, there was this community that I had experienced there that I haven't experienced in the same way since then. Of course, you're gonna grow past those stages, but of course, you also needed those stages. And so sometimes, sometimes first you have to see, but not clearly before you're then able to see clearly, which is what we see happening next in this encounter that man has with Jesus. Verse 25, Mark writes this. He says that once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I love the way that Sarah Rudin translates this verse. She, she's a Quaker, which is a movement within the Christian faith, and she's this leading translator of ancient literature and, and took the way that she's translating ancient literature and said, like, I've got such a deep appreciation and resonance with the gospel accounts of Jesus that what does it look like for me to take the, the work I'm doing over there and to bring it into this space? And, and I found her translation to be really helpful and fresh in some of the ways that she approaches it. And, and here's how she translates that passage. She says that the man, he saw with his eyes wide open. He saw everything clearly and in focus. Uh, Mark, Mark is using this story in his gospel as this way of showing how the disciples see Jesus. They saw him, but they didn't see him clearly. 
And then they go through a shift, they go through a transition, they go through an evolution where they begin to see him more clearly and more in focus with their eyes wide open. And this is the journey of faith that you and I go on constantly. In fact, what I have discovered is that this is a cycle that we return to over and over and over again, that we will have these moments where we can see, but we begin to realize, oh, I don't see clearly because we bump up against something that causes us to realize that. Our eyes get opened. We begin to see things more clearly and more in focus. But then what happens is we bump up against something else. And we realize, oh, I was seeing, but I wasn't seeing clearly. And so our eyes are opened again, and we begin to see a bit more clearly and a bit more in focus. And again, and again, and again, that this continually happens with us. We keep going through this. And I've, become, I've come to realize that this cycle, some of us will go through this in healthy ways. And we will experience more wholeness on the other side. And we'll experience more life on the other side. We'll experience more love and embody more love and receive more love and let more love live through us on the other side. And for some of us, when we hit this cycle, it causes us to move to a place that's unsustainable, that's driven by cynicism and contempt for maybe some of the places that we have been in and some of the places that shaped us and formed us. And so there's a couple of authors, there's a couple of authors named named Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich who, who have studied this and written about the way people's faith journeys progress and change and what that sort of looks like. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to take some of the ideas that they write about about what happens there. That They say when this happens in a healthy way, they've observed that there are these four movements that sort of happen. And that's what we're going to do as a practice experience today. We're going to spend about 10 minutes in just a, a few moments where uh, Mariah and Amina are going to lead us through a prayer experience and opening ourselves up experience, uh, some song experience that is just simply meant to help us open ourselves up to that movement from unseeing to seeing. And the thing is that as we walk through these four movements that it's not something that we're all going to experience and resonate with today. In fact, the way that these authors write about it is that this is something that occurs over a period of time that for many of us it will take months and sometimes it will take years for us to go through these four movements. But we just simply want to do a thing today where we kind of dip our toes in it a little bit, open ourselves up to it a little bit. Here's what they say happens. They say it begins with awareness. And awareness is becoming aware of our shadow sides. It's becoming aware of our hidden selves. It's becoming aware of the way that we project ourselves out to be rather than being who we actually are. And so they said that this journey starts with a growing sense of honesty and a growing sense of that awareness. They said that what happens next is that we move into a stage of forgiveness. And they said that forgiveness is this place where we forgive ourselves, we forgive others. We sit in the deep forgiveness of a good and gracious God. In this forgiveness of the recognition that as we are growing aware and honest that there are ways that we have actually hurt others, that we have disrupted the good, beautiful world around us, the way that we have hurt ourselves and that we receive and live in that forgiveness and maybe even begin to own the way that we extend that forgiveness to others. 
So the, the, the third phase that we sort of move into is what they call the acceptance phase. And the acceptance phase is, is where we can fully embrace ourselves, all of our humanity, all of what it means for me to be me, that I can actually accept. I'm not just aware of it. I don't just know that that's true of me, that I can actually embrace that this is all of who I am. And in the same way that God has loved and accepted me for who I am, I begin to receive that not only from God, but I begin to accept it myself as well. And I said that the last phase, what you move into is a phase of love. That we move into this place of love for ourselves, love for God, love for others. And really what happens in that phase is it's the culmination of all the others. That in some ways we can't create it, we can't manufacture it, but it is simply out of this growing movement in our lives as we come to be aware and receive and experience forgiveness and, and to grow in acceptance that as we do that, what begins to happen is our capacity to receive and extend love begins to grow within ourselves and begins to extend beyond ourselves. And so as we prepare to leave this place, would you receive this benediction? May you, the sisters and brothers at South Bend City Church, may you be open to continuing the journey of faith wherever it is that you find yourself. May you realize that sometimes you need to see, but not clearly, before you're able to see with eyes wide open, clearly and in focus. And may you embrace the beauty and the goodness of God in each stage along the way. Grace and peace to you all, friends. Have a great rest of your day.